News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How do you fight the problem of sexual misconduct in the military when it starts as early as the cadets themselves are being taught? The former head of training at the Royal Military College says two former heads of the institution did not take the issue of misconduct seriously. And now he says he feels ashamed of his time on the job because of it. This is the latest in an ongoing series of stories you'll find at globalnews.ca from Mercedes Stevenson. And she joins us now with more on this. Mercedes, thank you for joining us this morning to talk about this. Uh, Now, this story, you spoke with someone who used to be the training head at the Royal Military College. Yeah, so his name is Lieutenant Colonel Mark Popov, and he used to be the head of cadets, the director of cadets and the director of training, um, decorated war veteran, was in command in Afghanistan before that. And he came home to this posting, and, and people are typically posted to RMC like it's a sign of your career progression. So he was sent there because you're helping to develop the next generation of cadets. Um, but what he saw there, he says, broke him in terms of his faith in the military after what he alleges were essentially blatant cover-ups um, and and looking the other way at best um, when it came to sexual misconduct and an unwillingness to step in and help victims of sexual assault in the way that he felt uh, the military was publicly committing itself to do. And was he citing leadership for that? Did he was it was it pervasive? It was, and, and he's exactly citing leadership. Um, he named two specific generals. One is Major General Friday. He is now posted to U.S. Central Command in Florida, which is a very prestigious posting. Uh, and, and by the way, you don't go to RMC as the commandant if, if you're not seeing this potential future CDS or senior military material. Uh, and the other is actually the head of Canada's Air Force, Lieutenant General Al Meinzinger. Um, now, it, it's very clear when you're talking to Popov that he feels what Friday did was worse than what Meinzinger did. He's, he's that under Friday, um, essentially, and we can walk through them, but there was examples that were um, deeply concerning of sexual misconduct that he says were not appropriately addressed. Meinzinger, he said, didn't give him instructions not to write things down like he says Friday did, um, but he said he sort of was not as engaged as he should be, looked the other way um, when it came to looking after victims. And the example he gave there was that there was uh, a number of young women who had been sexually assaulted during their time at RMC as a result, they were receiving counseling for those um, sexual assaults. And technically, on military terms, that makes you not promotable because you're injured. So they weren't going to graduate. And he says that Meinzinger was not going to intervene to ensure that those women graduated, despite the fact they'd been victimized while they were at RMC until there was essentially immense pressure put on to him to do so. It makes it sound like from the description there, Mercedes, that, you know, these situations were impossible to ignore. Like people wouldn't be able to say, well, I didn't see anything dealing having to do with this. Well, yeah. And the one situation under General Friday was witnessed by a lot of people. Um, there there was uh, a young group of sea cadets and sea cadets are like, you know, kids. They're they're 12 to 18 years old and they were visiting the college. They were walking across the parade square when some of these adult male RMC cadets started yelling at them. And what they were yelling at them was so sexually graphic and violent um, and, and emphasis on violent with some of this. I can't repeat it to you on the air. 
Um, and this was witnessed by a number of people when they tried to track down who had said it. Nobody knew anything. No one could admit anything. There was an investigation, but Popov says that it really uh, wasn't of any significance. So he hauls all these cadets down onto the square and basically yells at them, and he admits to having sworn at them. He says he was reprimanded and his career ended because he would do this kind of thing, uh, but he was doing it out of frustration with a feeling that there was no consequences for these individuals. And he felt not only was the lack of consequences a problem, but he felt the message that it was sending to Canada's future military leadership was that if you engage in this sort of thing, you know, it's say one thing, do another, um, right. don't really crack down, no consequences, and the chain of command will cover for you. And he says, therefore, he doesn't find it surprising. There's a cultural problem in the forces. And does he think anything has changed, even with all this talk recently? I think he hopes it will. Um, he hopes there'll be change. There is, by the way, a different commandant at RMC now than the two generals who we were talking about. Uh, and this summer, for the first time, there will be a woman in command at the college. That's never happened before. Um, so there, there's certainly hope for change, but he wanted to step forward because he just felt RMC was being held up and continues to be held up, by the way, in, in the response from the Department of National Defense as a great example of how to deal with sexual misconduct and sexual assault. And his view is that that is not actually what was happening during his time there in reality, that that affected a lot of cadets, uh, not just victims, but witnesses, and that he wants to expose that so that it stops happening for the next generation. And what about the reaction of those two people, the ex-heads of the college that he named? They basically say that's not true. Um, that they have done everything in their power to deal with sexual misconduct and sexual assault during their time there, um, that uh, Meinzinger in particular said anything to the contrary simply is not true. Um, so, you know, DND today is standing by these two generals. I find it interesting because we've seen how they've reacted with previous generals. RMC is generally seen in military culture as unassailable. You don't touch it. You don't talk about it. You don't mess with RMC. Um, and yet I have so many in particular women who went to RMC coming to me and telling me this is an issue. And I think it's kind of remarkable that this is the first time we've heard from a man on the issue coming forward and saying, I tried to do something to protect not only women, but but all the cadets, and I was punished for it. And that his feeling is that that's what happened to other men in the forces, too, who tried to speak out or do something that um, it was your career that would suffer, too. Right. So, you know, he he certainly is raising some concerning issues. Um, as far as DND goes, I can tell you I've had four people come to me in the last 24 hours who were there at the same time as Mark Popov, who have the same memories that he did of how they say things went down. Interesting. Well, as always, Mercedes, thank you very much for that update. Thank you for having me. There is a brand new report out today that is highlighting gender diverse youth in BC schools. Now, even though their official results aren't being announced until later, we do have a bit of a preview of them. Thanks to our Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, researchers at UBC and McCreary Centre Society analyzed data from the BC Adolescent Health Survey. It was completed by more than 38,000 youth in grades 7 to 12, which meant that they could end up with 1,000 kids who identified differently than what they were assigned at birth. So that's about 2% of the population. And here's UBC nursing professor and uh, lead author Elizabeth Seawick. It's a fairly small group of, of young people, generally speaking, but it's not a trivial one. And they have often been invisible. They're still in our surveys. We just have never been able to ask and identify them. Oh, that is so interesting. So then, Raji, my understanding is this is the first survey 
for transgender youth that has a sample set large enough for them to do a a stable estimate. Is that right? Like how accurate do they think these results are? Actually fairly accurate because the survey is totally anonymous and, you know, kids may not be out to their families or peers and that kind of thing either. So they were probably really honest about the, their answers. And Seawick said that the questions had to be very basic in order to not confuse any of the respondents. What gender were you assigned at birth? Like what's on your birth certificate? And what gender do you identify as now, even if that's different from at birth? With the options now of male, female, and not identifying as male or female and not being sure. So that combination allows us to identify um, the groups. A lot of the research for non-binary youth previously comes from clinical health care. And that's important stuff, but it doesn't help us understand their overall well-being and their lives and their lifestyle. So the survey gives us a lot of information about exercise, about school, about sleep. It's going to be used by school nurses and counselors, teachers, principals to help them, you know, work on things like gender diverse students' feelings of school connectedness and community. Uh, I love the Mercury Center Society has been doing this kind of work for years. And it is fascinating because you're right, it's anonymous, right? The kids may feel more open in talking about these situations. Uh, Can you talk about the term though that you just used there, gender diverse? Yeah, well, of course, we know that words matter and the terminology is always evolving to become more accurate, safe, more equitable. Here's Elizabeth Seawick again. We actually struggled to figure out what would be the right term because um, in in this uh, report, we're looking at a variety of different groups of young people. So cisgender youth are those whose um, identity, their, their sense of being a, a boy or a girl aligns with the gender that was assigned to them at birth. And then trans boys and trans girls identify as boys or girls whose gender is not aligned with what was on their birth certificate. And then non-binary youth don't identify within the either as boys or girls, or maybe both, but some along the spectrum. And then those who are questioning are like still not sure of how their gender aligns, what their gender identity is. And it's this group of trans, non-binary, and questioning young people that we are identifying as gender diverse. Okay, this is so fascinating. So uh, you're going to be talking to us later in the show about more of the specifics of this, but Mm -hmm. can you give us an idea of what kind of in general this new survey told us? Yeah, you know, Simi, even when I came across this press release, I was like a little bit nervous because we're so used to hearing about the bullying, the cyberbullying, and we know that it is way higher for gender diverse youth. But overall, we are shown from the survey results that strong school and family ties buffer discrimination, and the majority of our diverse gendered youth are actually doing okay. Some are doing really great. That's actually really good news. It <laughs> is. I'm kind of surprised by that. Like we're so, you're right. We're so used to hearing the, you know, the trouble, the the negative aspect of this. So they, so the majority of them feel like they're doing all right. They're being supported. They're being supported. Their families are more understanding than ever before. And schools are doing a lot, actually, to make sure that feel that uh, those students feel connected, that they feel like they belong and that the school is theirs, too. Okay, so you said about, it was about 1,000 students out of yeah, 38,000? That's, that's right. So that's a pretty large sample set. And they said that this is just really the first path. They are hoping that, you know, they will 
uh, continue to do so much more nuanced, more intricate and detailed work that they're going to have more interesting results down the line with as well. So these surveys are done every five years or so, which allows them to also look at things over time and see trends and see how things are changing in that regard. I mean, if I look back five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we didn't even have the kinds of terminology that we do today so true. to help these gender diverse youth feel included. Right. Okay. That's that's a good sign then uh, to hear about that. And this sounds like a more positive story. We're going to be hearing more coming up a little bit later. Yes. Excellent. Thank you so much, Raji. Thanks, Simi. Talk more about the top story, of course, right across the country over the last few days. We have seen those memorials happening to honor the 215 children whose remains were found on the site of the Kamloops Residential School last week. It's been a shocking reminder, the awful legacy of those schools, a legacy that many say is not yet fully dealt with. So is this the beginning of that reckoning? And how do we do this? How do we approach this? Well, joining us now for more on all of this is Mary Ellen Terpelifond, UBC Law Professor, Director of the Residential School History and Dialogue Centre at the Peter Allard School of Law. Thank you for being with us this morning. Um, It's good to join you, Simi. What was your initial thoughts when you heard about this story last week? Well, I've been, um, I was aware of this situation for some time and through the UBC Residential School Center, we've been working with survivors and the records and the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation for a number of years, in fact, since we were established. And uh, so we are aware of the fact that there, the survivors have spoken about missing children and that um, there are a number of schools in British Columbia where this was a very strong um, likelihood. So I, I certainly wasn't shocked I knew that this was underway, but the community had taken the lead in terms of, you know, having to investigate this itself. And so I was certainly standing to support them and recognizing just how complex and difficult this is for community, but also for survivors. Do you think this was a wake-up call for people, though, who, who maybe had heard about this but didn't realize the depth at which this had impacted so many people? I think it... I think it's a wake-up call, and I think in some ways perhaps, um, you know, Canada and others are more ready to hear, finally, what the survivors said. But I also, you know, of course, it's with an incredibly heavy heart because it's so full of sorrow, and it does raise some really fundamental issues. And certainly myself, you know, working in this area, Uh, supporting survivors and addressing the legacy of residential schools with community. I have really been very concerned about the fact that it just has not been taken seriously. So now that we're in this situation, you know, there, there are some really complex but urgent questions now, which at a time where people should be focusing on you know, the processing, the the finding at the emotional level and the community level, there's just so many issues around what about the unmarked burial site and how, how will this be addressed and who takes responsibility and what about the standards that we need to have in place to address this appropriately and make sure we do the right thing now. And where do we start with that? You're right, those are a lot of big questions. Where do we start? Right, well, first of all, we start from the fact that you know, there are basic international human rights and humanitarian law issues. You know, human remains 
belong to, you know, and at their request should be returned to family um, alongside, you know, but distinct from a, you know, a proper investigation of why is there an undocumented uh, gravesite or burials uh, anywhere. And so in Canada, I mean, this is something we've seen, you know, places like Bosnia, you know, um, Croatia and others. This isn't something that Canada has a proper framework for. So we need to go to that level you know, the, the whole issue of positive identification of those at the burial site, you know, at, a, at its very base, you know, recognizes sort of the anguish of families of not knowing the fate of their loved ones. And I think that's where British Columbians and Canadians are today, standing with the people of Kamloops and, in fact, all the First Nations from the interior of BC, because children were rounded up from everywhere and forced to go to the school. But without, you know, identification and proper recognition of the death of these children... You know, families are denied the dignity in their grief, and there's incredible impediments to exercising their basic human rights, like having your loved one, uh, you know, known and returned to you to be given the proper last rites of burial. These are such basic issues of, you know, um, our values, but also our laws in Canada. And so even just the issue of a community having to investigate this burial site on its own without Canada having a proper framework in place. This is what shocked people as well. Right. That they had to do this all on their own because they couldn't get the support or it almost felt like, you know, they, they had their stories, they knew the stories, but nobody else really cared enough until now. That's right. And you have to think of it like this, Simi, Um, you know, mass graves, we've seen this around the world, but for residential school survivors, this burial site with 200, uh, you know, more than 200 likely bodies there, people, children. Um, what it does is it, it, it hides the identity when you don't know. It hides the identity of those who remain. And it, it violates the right of each victim to an identity in death, even though we need to know much more about the circumstances about why did these children die. There's a lot more to find out. There's this issue of just the fundamental piece of hiding the identity, unmarked, not necessarily documented or known and connected to the family. And that is about concealing. And so in Canada, I feel like perhaps Canadians now, it's not as concealed as it was Mm -hmm. what has happened at these schools. But nevertheless, in the shock and horror, as we process it, we have to come back to most important principles, which is we must identify these children we must make sure that, you know, this system, this horrific residential school system did not prevail in stripping them of their identity, including, you know, around this, this death, not mm-hmm. to mention why did they, why did they die young? We also know, though, that we, from what we've been told, like this isn't a unique site, right? So do you think this is going to prompt the examination of more grounds of residential schools across Canada? Uh, well, yes. I mean, I know many other sites that are <laughs> where the survivors told the stories. I mean, get, remember, I mean, residential school survivors courageously came forward to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, about 4,000, and gave statements. But quite apart from that, um, you know, there was 20 years where they came forward and sued the churches in Canada for the mistreatment, you know, and it took years and years. And some of the residential school survivors never even lived to see the conclusion of that. I mean, they, they spent their entire lives getting someone to hear the story. And the, you know, the state, Canada, the church representatives and others fought them viciously 
to even be able to tell the stories and be heard. Um, there were criminal prosecutions, you know, for predators. Think of the, um, there's many on record. I mean, massive prosecutions in terms of the sort of some of the pedophiles that worked at these schools where kids were abused. So, it, again, this is not unknown. This has been known for some time, but there's never been the kind of team put together to do this. And so to have Indigenous people having to investigate their own mass graves is what I think is yeah. an incredible affront here. Oh, that is so true. So do you think that this is the awakening for everybody else? Like, you know, for Canadians who'd heard these stories, but you know, you always heard that uh, that awful argument, oh, well, that was in the past, we've recognized it, we're moving on. No, no, no. This tells us that we are just starting to deal with this. Well, yes, we're just starting to deal with it. It hasn't been dealt with. People have been left. I mean, basically, they didn't really believe the survivors. And then, you know, there was some effort to say, well, let's get a registry of the names of the missing, if you like. But the actual work, and then, of course, we do have some technology now, like ground penetrating radar and other digital technologies. But to actually have a proper team in place, so with the, you know, we, we have to sort of like take guardianship of this site and make sure that it's properly managed. But also, I mean, the painful piece is that, you know, an unmarked, undocumented burial site is also a crime scene. So the issue of who's taking responsibility here, how are they going to engage and how will the community, you know, be respected? Uh, th- these are the kinds of issues that, you know, they're so, so important right now in Canada. And I do think the world is watching what Canada yes. does. And the world is watching what, what happens in British Columbia in a place like Kamloops. And I'm sure in years ahead, there's going to be uh, more than Kamloops in British Columbia that we'll be talking about. Thank you for your time on that this morning. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Thank you, Simi. You know, these haven't been easy times for many people, especially those who are closest to dealing with COVID-19, such as the doctors and nurses of our province. Well, now many doctors are speaking out about what they have been going through. And we are talking about abuse, threats, and vitriol that has just been directed at these healthcare professionals. Doctors say they need more patience and understanding from the public. Well, what led to this? Joining us now for more on that is Dr. Matthew Chow, President of Doctors of BC. Dr. Chow, thank you for joining us. Good morning. You know, it's not very often that doctors kind of speak up about the struggles that they're going through. I mean, it sounds like things have really reached a tipping point for a lot of doctors. Yes, they certainly have. And, you know, it's unfortunate to say this, but uh, it's a continuation of what we've been seeing over the past 15 months. Uh, and and uh, at this point, um, they're just people are just having such short fuses, uh, and it's really wearing down the, uh, the medical profession. Though certainly our public health officials experienced this, you know, you know the brunt of this at first. Uh, it's it, there's been spillover throughout uh, throughout the profession for all my colleagues. So would you say, like, even in family clinics, like we're talking doctors right across in everywhere? Absolutely, um, I'm hearing from my family physician colleagues, you know, whose front desk staff are subject to abuse and harassment. Um, family physicians who are having to 
to leave interviews with patients so they can intervene um, in these interactions, uh, people getting doxxed, uh, people receiving threatening messages, uh, racist abuse and taunts in their email, uh, even myself on Twitter, you know, I posted something about schools, um, you know, which is something close to my heart, having, having you know, children in school and being a mental health uh, uh, specialist that uh, specializes in children and youth and getting abuse from that, you know, being accused of, you know, hating children and, you know, wanting children to come to harm, which is, you know, a bit much to take. Uh, yeah, we're, we're all experiencing it. That, has it gotten worse, do you think, over the last 15 months? Do you, do, do you really feel that, you know, people have, are losing patience or they're kind of afraid ends? Yeah, well, here's the thing. The vast majority of people are great. You know, I, I really feel like there's been a coming together of our community, of our society over these 15 months. Um, but there's, there's a, a, you know, a, a certain percentage of people that, that are not coping very well, and they're, they're choosing to take it out. I think, on my colleagues and on our staff, and that is not okay. That is not cool to be doing that. No, it is not. Um, so, you know, what are doctors doing to deal with this? I mean, are they? you said they're having to leave sometimes treatment rooms to go, what, confront people? Yeah, essentially, you know, to, to step up and, and to protect our staff. That's I've, I've certainly heard that happening. Um, yeah, facilities, health, government facilities, health authority facilities have put up signs uh, private practices have put up signs basically saying that abuse will not be tolerated. Now, certainly this was the case even before the pandemic because abuse should never be tolerated. It's never okay to, to take things out on another human being. Um, but uh, we've really had to reinforce that messaging during the pandemic that, that it's not okay to be, uh, to, to be harassing and abusing and threatening people. And so what is the message then that you want to take to people? Like, what is it that they're all upset about, by the way? Like, when they're coming in there arguing with their doctor, like, why? You know, it's, it's a whole bunch of things. Sometimes it could even be a little thing uh, that turns into a big deal, a difficulty with scheduling, you know, having access issues. Um, but sometimes I think it's just the, the pandemic fatigue, you know, 15 months of restrictions has worn people down to the point that, uh, that they just, they, you know, the, like I said, the fuses are short so easy to, to cross into that territory of, of extreme anger and frustration and taking it out on people. Um, so I wouldn't even say that there's a consistent uh, consistency behind what, what's driving some of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am, I am hearing some concerning reports from, from, from certain members, especially um, women, uh, physicians and, and staff members, that they're subject to, to, to even more abuse than my I'm Kimbo colleagues. with the B... Uh, I'm, I'm hearing from uh, folks that are racialized, especially my Asian colleagues who are, who are experiencing increased abuse around their ethnicity, about, around their race, which is you know very different. Thank you very much. Uh, sorry about that, uh, Dr. Chow. Um, you were talking about the type of uh, situations that you have had to deal with there. W- like, what is it that you feel like people are forgetting here? Like, what what are they so angry about that they well, need to do this? I think- um, I, I think f- folks need to realize we're all human beings. We're all just trying to get through this. And certainly doctors and our staff, we're no different than anyone else. We're just trying to get through this pandemic as, as well. We don't necessarily set the rules. Um, we don't uh, set up the restrictions. And even those of our colleagues that do, our public health officials, our public health specialists, you know, they didn't ask for a pandemic. They don't want to do population-level restrictions on people. So we're all just trying to get by. We're just trying to get through the day. And so if we extend each other a little bit more patience, a little bit of grace, a little bit of, you know, the benefit of the doubt, I, I think we'll all get along a lot better. 
and realize too that you know brighter days really are ahead. You know the vaccination campaign is going so well. We're seeing case counts come down. Um, the pressure on the hospitals is starting to lift. You know we're getting to the end of this, and it would be just such a shame that you know in the last few you know kilometers of of of, of this marathon, if you want to think of it that way, yeah. Um, that, that people would sort of falter and, and take it out on their fellow human beings. It seems like such a simple thing, though, doesn't it? Like, just to say to people, you don't need to get angry about this. You can talk about this and do that. But yet people just have seemed to have forgotten, I don't know, basic niceties, it feels like sometimes. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, we, we again, extending each other some patience. I've even gone short with people during this, you know, it, it wears down on me as well, because I'm a human being just like anyone else. And I've had to apologize to someone, you know, when I was short with them. And I think if we realize that, that to some extent, you know, being impatient, being frustrated is normal. It's normal to have human reactions. Um, but once we take it out, or if, if we're thinking about taking it out on someone to, to use some other techniques to, to try to overcome that. And when we have wronged someone, when we have been short, and when we have, um, and we, and, uh, and we have, uh, you know, fallen below the mark in terms of the standard of behavior to, to reach out and to apologize, to say sorry. Um, that means a lot too. You know, we're going to have to remember that. Dr. Chow, thank you for your time on that this morning. No problem at all. Ever wondered what's really on the minds of teenagers out there? Well, there is a new survey that's got all sorts of new data that is out today. It's being released this morning from researchers at UBC, but our Raji Sohal has been giving us a sneak preview of that. Uh, We're talking about 38,000 total youth that were surveyed. And this is the most extensive survey of its kind done among diverse gender youth in BC schools. And Raji has more on that for us this morning. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Good morning. Yeah, this is, um, like you said, a really extensive survey. These are conducted every five years. So we're able to see trends over time, what's changed, what's what's staying the same. And, you know, despite what we hear a lot about transgender youth, you know, including that they are bullied and harassed at school, that they still face a lot of discrimination and just a lot of obstacles to coming out um, in society at large, but, you know, also just with their families. Um, But we know that when diverse gender youth experience bullying, it has health consequences in their lives, including stress. That's something that came out of the report. But the report also found some surprising and encouraging data too, including that there are huge similarities between diverse gender youth and cisgender peers. And um, among some of those things are that, for example, uh, cis or rather uh, transgender youth um, actually have the same rates of alcohol, tobacco, and cannabis use. So that means that um, they are not necessarily uh, using any of those substances more than um, their cisgender peers uh, as a way of coping or otherwise. Um, and here's UNB, UBC, here's UBC's uh, nursing professor, uh, Elizabeth Seawick. She was the lead author of the report. The large majority of gender diverse youth plan to complete high school and go on to post-secondary education. And most gender diverse youth report involvement in one or more of extracurricular activities, 80%. They are involved in, um, in informal sports, um, you know, thinking about biking and skateboarding and, and such things, and arts and um, drama and music and physical like exercise classes and yoga and um, 
Um, there are also a, a large number that are involved in volunteering and in clubs and groups. Okay, that is really interesting then, Raji. So the survey showed that about a thousand kids who identified as, you know, having a gender diverse history, uh, they're involved. Yeah, they're involved and they're only going to be involved because they feel comfortable enough to belong. And we know that in high school, to increase a sense of belonging, you really got to participate. You really have to, you need something to link you to feeling a part of something uh, larger. And um, it's just so encouraging to hear that they are participating in those numbers. However, like I said earlier, Simi, um, a lot of these youth may not be out. Um, as this uh, this survey was conducted amongst anonymous respondents, right? All the youth that participated right. in it were anonymous, so um, they're they're answering, you know, more honestly. But indeed, um, they're feeling connected. They are engaged in in the community, and I think to the extent that many of these places are accepting and supportive, then um, it, it's an important opportunity for them to um, to thrive, especially because we find youth who have um, are involved in meaningful activities where they have a voice, where their ideas are listened to, um, that being involved in what they think of are meaningful activities actually contributes to their well-being. So the fact that trans and non-binary youth are involved in extracurricular activities and they do find them meaningful is, is really a positive sign. Okay, this is good. This is positive. I feel like we needed to hear something like this today. Yeah, absolutely. It's just so encouraging to hear that diverse gender youth are overall doing all right in our school systems. And research shows that where young people report high levels of two things, connectedness at school, so feeling safe at school, like their teachers care about them, like they belong, and two, a supportive family at home, then they are reporting excellent mental health. And, you know, so many things factor into that. And a lot of parents, um, you know, don't know how to yeah. approach these topics with their children. It's been a and learning so this, experience, wouldn't you say, absolutely, for everybody? Yeah. Absolutely, for everyone, us included. And so um, it's so critical that uh, both parents, family at home, and then at school, counselors and teachers and whatnot are, are working to change all of that. And things are changing. You know, BC government um, made anti-bullying policies a requirement in every single school in the district recently. And then there are policies that are protecting LGBTQ and diverse gender youth. We've also seen a lot of like high profile role models in the public eye recently, including um, Elliot Page, who recently talked to Oprah about transitioning, and Demi Lovato came out as non-binary recently. And you know, there, there, it's not that there are more gender diverse people than before. That's something I often hear people say, like, "Oh, why am I suddenly hearing about this?" That's right. You're yeah. suddenly hearing about it because gender diverse people might be feeling more supported. Finally, times are changing, and acceptance is just increasing overall in society. But there is definitely, you know, a spectrum also. Um, of non-binary. So right. there are people who, you know, are on one side of the spectrum and then every single thing between all the way to the other side of the spectrum. Right. And I think they're finding the words. That's the other thing. Absolutely. They're finding the way to express themselves. This is the way to help them do that. So I find this very heartening. Raji, thank you for telling us all about it this morning. Some good news on this Monday morning. Returning now to our top story, we've heard that the BC Teachers Federation, the union representing teachers in this province, is calling on all their members to wear orange today to school and for all those schools to lower their Canadian flags to half-mast this week. 
This, of course, to honor, to remember the 215 children found in that unmarked mass grave at the former Kamloops Residential School. To talk more about this, about how to deal with this in our schools, we're joined now by Terry Mooring, president of the BCTF. Terry, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. Well, first off, let's put that message out there. What would you like to see in schools today? So what we had a provincial meeting on Friday and Saturday of all our uh, leaders from across the province, and overwhelmingly um, they wanted to do something to uh, underline the significance and the sadness of uh, the discovery in Kamloops. And so what we decided is that we would ask uh, all our members to wear orange this week. Um, we felt that it was important that uh, that we engage in actions that lasted the week. This is a, a very sad and very significant um, find, and it's not... It's, it's something that um, is a confirmation of what Aboriginal people have been telling us for decades. And so there was a real um, desire to show solidarity with uh, Aboriginal families, with Aboriginal teachers and, and staff um, and children. Uh, and so we're asking uh, our members to wear orange this week. Um, during this week to stage walk-ins, and mm-hmm. so that will happen across the province. And what that will look like is teachers wearing orange, gathering outside the school, and just all walking in together when the bell rings wearing orange. And then also we, we're asking that the uh, flags fly at half-mast, and I know that uh, the Ministry of Education has requested that of school districts, and so that will happen as well. Like, it'll be a learning opportunity, too, I would imagine, or a teaching one, right? If all the teachers are wearing orange shirts, I'm sure there'll be children who want to talk about that. How do you deal with a situation like this in the classroom? Yeah, there there will be. It's, and it's important to talk about it. We teach about residential schools, and Aboriginal knowledge and culture is embedded into the curriculum. And so many uh, children will already be aware of residential schools. But there are lots of really age-appropriate ways to deal with this. And, and a lot of it, um, a lot of teachers will be choosing to do it through books. So, for example, we have a learning resource, an e-book on our website, and it tells the story of Gladys. And Gladys's family worked with the BCTF a few years ago. Um, and Gladys was a child that never came home from the Kamloops Residential School. And so this uh, resource outlines the impact of that loss on, on family and what happened in, in these residential schools. And so, again, this is not new information. Um, this discovery is absolutely tragic, but it does underscore the depth of the mm-hmm. atrocities that happened at residential schools and and confirms what we've been told and, and what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you know, um, the stories that Aboriginal people told uh, that commission. Uh, in some cases, those stories were documented for the first time in writing uh, during the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You said that we teach this in our schools already, but do we do enough of it? Well, there isn't enough being done, uh, certainly. And so there is, uh, the BCTF worked for a very, a very long time to uh, get the uh, Aboriginal content knowledges uh, embedded into the curriculum. Um, we've got a lot of resources, but what really needs to happen is every institution, uh, there's institutional racism in all our institutions, um, in our education system, in our health system, 
in our policing system, in our government systems. And so there is a need, and, and we've been calling for some specific training to happen in this coming school year. So specific anti-racism, anti-oppression training, and also a trauma-informed practice training. Um, what we're going to see this week and what we're prepping for in schools is we're going to have students coming to school whose, whose families will have been really triggered and re-traumatized, and those children will be feeling it as well. And so it's critical that we use a trauma-informed lens, and that training needs to happen. And so we're looking to work with the education partners and government to ensure that training happens in the coming year. This really does underscore the need for that sort of training. So do you think that we don't have enough of the tools right now to adequately support the children, the teachers who may need that? Well, what will happen right now is uh, counselors will be uh, deployed to schools to support teachers in having these conversations. It's important that we have these conversations because students will be seen in the news, you know, students that aren't um, Aboriginal will be seen this in the news and will have questions. And it's important that those conversations happen at school. It's also important that those conversations happen within families. Um, and it, you know, needs to be handled very sensitively. And so that will happen. But there is a real need overall, and we've been working with government for a number of years now, for more resources to be provided to classrooms so that teachers can teach about Aboriginal uh, communities and people in their home communities. So it's important that those locally developed resources that are developed in conjunction with Aboriginal communities uh, be um, be developed. And so there is a need for that. I will also note that there are so many resources on the FNASC, the First Nations Ed- Education Steering Committee website, and on the BCTF website as well. So there are a lot of resources available to teachers to have these conversations, and they're also available for families to to check out as well. That's what I was wondering. So, like, could parents use these resources as well to have chats with kids about this at home? Absolutely. And local libraries will have books as well that are really useful. It's really useful, especially for younger children, to, to, you know, kind of break this down uh, in terms of, uh, of, a, of a narrative. And there's lots of books out there to support with that. It's really important that we all talk about this, mm-hmm. that the truth is known, because as we know, uh, it's taken decade upon decade for the truth to come out. And this really does underscore, as I say, the, the level of the atrocities that were experienced at residential schools. So Terry, one more time then, what are those two websites that people can go to for resources? So bctf.ca, we have on our uh, main page, uh, you'll see Aboriginal uh, education resources, so they are there. Um, also the First Nations Education Steering Committee, uh, so mfnesc.ca. Uh, Finesque has a wealth of resources there as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much, Simi.